We are reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, if you want to turn with me and read along. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray for you, Nick. Um, just as a um, chance to kind of update you as well on on uh, Lucas situation, so um, good to see them here this morning. Um, uh, the, the doctors have decided to to admit him for most of the time uh, in the hospital, um, just to um, just gotten a little bit too hard to swallow and eat properly and get the nutrition that he needs. So um, he's exactly where the Lord uh, where he needs to be, where the Lord wants him. Um, to to get what he needs, to get the nutrition, the the um, the rest that he needs. Um, so just be praying for him as well, um, and uh, just as always that the Lord be glorified in in their story and their situation. Um, it's funny because uh, you might feel it, but right now um, the life of village is um, sometimes feels a little bit, uh, you know. Not frantic, but um, we're just holding on and um, figuring it out kind of day by day, um, probably more in our kind of staff team, and uh, we're down a man, and um, in some ways it feels like, Lord, we need you. Um, we need you to do what you're doing, 
Um, but in other ways, it's really exciting um, because Jesus is building his church. Even in the midst of that, um, I think the, the most special times of him building is normally in those situations where we are reminded of our weakness, where we are reminded that it's not by our power that we're building this, um, that it's through him that he has promised to do it. Um, and it's cool to see him do it. Um, so, um, yeah. I'm excited to have uh, Nick and Alan over at South uh, be uh, coming to preach for us and to uh, just do what we normally do. And this is a normal thing. Uh, open up the Word and um, look at it and pray that the Spirit's going to illuminate its truths to us. So uh, let me pray for you. Um, uh, if you would, just as an act of unity, stretch out your hand and we're going to pray for Nick. Um, Father, we love you. We thank you that you are... Um, you have had a plan from the beginning, and that you've been working out your plan, um, and we are part of that. We are part of your people, um, your, your purposes, and we thank you, Jesus, for, for coming and for becoming our substitute, for taking the wrath that, that we were due, God, um, and that we are now clothed in your righteousness, so we now stand uncondemned, and that we have freedom uh, to, to be your people, to be in your presence. Uh, how good is that? Uh, Spirit, we ask that you would guide us right now. Um, we know that um, Nick coming up to uh, give us his thoughts, his, his musings on, on these, uh, these scriptures is not enough in and of itself, that we need your power, Spirit. And we need you to speak through him. We need you to open our, our eyes and to take the veil off of our, our hard hearts um, and let us see your truth. Let us see uh, just the truth of your gospel once again. Um, so fill our hearts, God. Um, pray for Nick. Um, just take away any nerves he has. Uh, may he know he's in the midst of brothers and sisters. Um, pray the same for Alan, God, over south. Um, just may you be uh, made really uh, big, Lord Jesus. Um, may we leave today um, with full hearts for you, God. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, church. Um, firstly, just before we get started, um, yeah, I just want to say straight off the bat that from about Friday of this week, um, I've been losing my voice, um, which is, is, is great timing for that. Um, but yeah, we're a little bit better this morning, so please bear with me if I sound a little croaky and a little teenage um, as my voice kind of breaks and stuff. So. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that that's happened on a week that I've been preparing to preach, so um, please, even as I'm preaching, pray into that, um, and yeah, bear with me. So also, before I get started this morning, um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all um, for all your prayers and the kind words of encouragement that um, Sarah and I have received um, from so many of you over the past couple of weeks. Um, and just as Alan and I have been announced as eldership candidates, um, in speaking to him this week, we've both felt... Um, really supported, really loved by all of you, um, and we really appreciate your prayers um, throughout the next lot of weeks and months as we step into something that's equally kind of exciting and daunting for us. Um, so please, please just pray for God's wisdom um, and guidance, not only for myself and Alan, but um, for our elders, um, and uh, yeah, just as we seek to glorify him in this process, um, and that as we trust it, that, that his will will be done through it. So as we've read, um, we're going to be in First uh, Thessalonians 5 this morning, um, and as I was preparing to teach this morning, it was an absolute joy to discover this passage and just how much it stands out as one so rich 
and one which is so many truths so pertinent to our church family in the season in which we find ourselves. We could probably designate a whole series to this chapter alone, never mind the whole book, um, but this morning we're just going to take a broad sweep of that whole chapter um, and, and just try not to kind of let how quickly I'm moving over some of these things um, give the impression that they're not of profound and substantial depth and worth to us as believers in Christ. Over the past few months, we've explored some teaching on our core values as a church um, and what that looks like to be a gospel-centered community um, and the practicalities of that. And that was followed by some really helpful teaching um, from five guest speakers over the past five weeks um, who covered subjects such as how we suffer well, um, um, how we live well and engage with others in the world around us in the time in which we live, and just generally how we bring glory to God with our lives in, throughout, and regardless of any circumstances. And it's my hope and prayer that as we work through this passage, which speaks to so much of that, that God will use these words and speak to us and kind of re echo and reinforce um, a lot of what we've heard over the past few weeks. And hopefully that will kind of bookend this little season of teaching that we've been in, um, as Thomas said, as we look to Advent over the coming weeks. So let me just pray before we get stuck in. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Um, give us open ears and, and hearts to listen, God. Use my imperfect, limited words and voice um, to speak to us um, and speak to us through them. By the power of your Spirit, we pray that, your hearts, uh, that our hearts would be transformed and that um, we bring glory to your name, God. May you become greater and greater, Lord. Amen. And so by way of summary, um, we're just going to look at kind of what has been happening in Thessalonians up to chapter 5. So... Paul begins his first letter to the, the church in Thessalonica just a short time after establishing it in around AD 49.50. And Paul is in Corinth at the time of writing, um, and he's writing having received a report um, from his kind of protege, Timothy, um, who has been um, with the Thessalonians more recently. Um, and in this report, Timothy has commended this young church for their faith and love and for remaining steadfast even in the face of persecution. And Paul writes with the intention of encouraging them um, in the context of that persecution. And as the letter unfolds, we learn that some of the Thessalonian believers had concerns, anxieties, and fears about life and death, about their own mortality, and about Christ's return and the judgment that that would bring. However, in the face of these issues, and against all these fears and anxieties, Paul's response is simple. He points them to the gospel, and in doing so, he shows that rather than being fearful, we should take heart in the sure return of Christ. Paul begins the letter by giving thanks, and in chapter 1, verse 2, we see, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And he then goes on to just give us a little overview um, of kind of his relationship with this church up to this point. He assures the Thessalonians of his love for them. He talks at length about his longing to return to visit them, and we see him praising, him praising them for their faithfulness to God and to the gospel. And then a consistent theme starts to emerge out of this, where we see Paul continually offering encouragement and exhortation hand in hand. So he encourages the church to live a life pleasing to God and acknowledges the ways in which they've been doing that. And then he says, do this more and more. And we see this in chapter four, verses nine to 11, when Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. So he's saying, this is great, but continue, continue doing it. 
And Thessalonians can be regarded as one of Paul's less rebuking letters. Um, we see the heart of a, a pastor writing to a church that he cares for very much. Um, and throughout this account, we see a real fondness that Paul holds for the Thessalonian believers. And it's in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that we see the first use of the, the Greek word Adelphi, um, basically meaning brothers or the plural brothers and sisters. And Paul repeatedly uses this word and this language throughout the letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and, and he identifies them as family, okay? So he's identifying the church as his true brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Paul continually relates to the, the church in this familial way, um, we see how Thessalonians is so much more than just a historical account of a church being planted. Much more than that, Paul has shown us how the good news of the gospel uniquely relates to the church. And so much as just as our salvation has united us to Christ, so too does it unite us to one another as family, as brothers and sisters. And by the second half of chapter four, Paul's focus has turned to the one area um, in which we're aware that he thought correction, more so than outright rebuke, was necessary. So that was the Thessalonians' confusion um, or uncertainty just around death and Christ's return. And as first, century Thess- as first century Christians, the Thessalonians lived with a very immediate expectancy of Christ's return. So having lived kind of through some of them having lived through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, um, they, they expected Jesus' return imminently. And living through a time where they were still subject to intense persecution, even to the point of physical harm, they probably longed for his return in a way in which we don't in our comfortable 21st century circumstances. However, as time passed, we're told that some of these believers died. This could have been through natural circumstances, but it's also likely that some were killed at the hands of Roman authorities or Jewish leaders. And as this happened, it didn't fit with the Thessalonians' idea of how they would be delivered. They somehow feared that those who already died would lose out when Christ returned. And that's why Paul writes at length to reassure them. And we see this in chapter four, verses 13 to 14, when Paul says, do not fear for those who have already passed. The Lord will return and he will complete the work he began in them. And as we enter chapter five, where our reading comes from today, Paul begins this chapter by once again addressing concerns and correcting thinking. Whereas in chapter four, the Thessalonians' concern was directed towards their loved ones who who had passed away. In chapter five, their concern is turned to themselves um, and it's focused on their own not knowing of when Jesus would return. Paul to this quite simply says in chapter five, verse one, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So basically Paul is saying here, concerning the times and the seasons, don't concern yourselves with this. We're not to know the date and time, we will never know the date and time, and more importantly, we don't need to know the date and time of Christ's return. Paul's saying that as terrifying as it will be to those who are not found in Christ when he returns, For his disciples, he tells us there's nothing to fear. The time doesn't matter because as he tells us, we are children of light. And instead of being preoccupied with knowing when, Paul instead is urging us to be ready for Christ's return. And it's here that we're gonna pick this passage up. It was quite a long introduction, I I admit, but um, yeah, thanks for sticking with me. Um, It's here that we're gonna pick this up in verse nine. Um, And it's easy to read this chapter as two distinct sections. The first one, as we've kind of glossed over, one of Paul's reassurance, 
And then the second one is we're going to unpack a little bit here um, as a section of instruction. But sandwiched right between those two sections are a couple of verses that it's easy to miss, um, but they're a beautiful couple of verses in which Paul steers our attention straight back to the gospel. Paul, having just reassured the Thessalonians that there's nothing for them to fear as children of light in Christ's return, doesn't stop there, but instead he provides them with an understanding of just how they've been made to be children of light and how secure they are in that. And in doing so, he reminds us today of the reason for our hope. So verse 9 to 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, when he says awake or asleep here, he's referring to physically alive or physically dead when Christ returns, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So again, we're seeing that encouragement and exhortation. But here, Paul focuses on what God has done to make us children of the light and provides clear explanation, clear but brief explanation of two aspects of our salvation, which give us the firm foundation that we have in our communal or shared hope. First aspect is God's appointment, okay? Um, so Paul reminds us here that God has not destined us for wrath. If we're to flip that around, we can say that God has appointed us for salvation. Ephesians chapter one, verse four speaks to this when it says that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He has rescued us from his wrath, his judgment, and his condemnation to receive salvation and forgiveness of sins. So we have God's appointment. And secondly, it's Christ's death through which we receive this. Christ who died for us so that we might live with him. Christ died for us that we might live. Paul first addresses God's purpose for us before addressing his means to achieving that purpose. And in this, we have Paul cut into the core of the gospel. And this gives us the firm foundation for our faith. Our hope in salvation is built upon God's will and Christ's death. And so for the Thessalonians and for ourselves, Paul is saying our reason for not being anxious, for not being fearful, for being bold, and for being confident is not found in who we are, but in what God has done. Yes, we are children of light, and this is our identity in Christ, but if our focus is on this, we will inevitably strive to sustain that identity on our own strength and through performance on our own actions. And so Paul says our hope is not found in who we are, but as a result of what Christ has done. Therefore, in trials, in persecution, in sickness, in death, Paul says, take heart from the sure return of Christ. The Christ who has died for you is the same Christ that will return. The same Christ who has already paid the ultimate price for our souls. So therefore, take heart, do not be anxious, not on the day when Christ returns, and not now. And following this in verse 11, we see a therefore. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we see, we see Paul instructing us to do this in light of what he has just said. And Paul's saying, use these words, use these truths that you share with one another and encourage one another. And it's here that Paul is pointing us towards gospel community. He's saying that this hope which you share mutually, which unites you not only to Christ, but to one another as well, should also shape our mutual actions. So our shared hope, should affect how we act and how we relate and how we engage with each other as church. And for the remainder of the chapter, Paul issues us with instructions as to what a gospel community or simply a gospel church should look like. 
And we're going to look very briefly at the three areas of instruction that Paul issues and consider how we respond together to the hope that we share together. I'm going to take a drink because my voice is drying up quite badly here. <clears throat> so, point one. As part of our communal response to the hope that we share, we're to love our leaders. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And here, Paul is describing some of the roles of a church leader, or what would at the time soon become known as the roles of elders within the church. And this not only helps us to identify who it is that Paul's talking about that we're to love and esteem highly and respect, um, but it also tells us that it is the work of these people, um, more so than their title or their status, um, which should be the reason for that love and that respect. The Greek word from which we derive labor in this verse is one that Paul commonly uses throughout his letters, and it refers to manual labor um, in its original sense, even to the point of physical exhaustion. So as we would say in Belfast, it, it, it's like saying knocking your pan in, okay? So Paul says here, those who are knocking their pan in for you and for the gospel, respect them for the work that they're doing, okay? They're working until they drop. Moreover, it shouldn't be lost on us that those who Paul highlights that God has called to be over us, um, it shouldn't be lost on us that, that they're actually called to be under people, okay? And the call of the church elder and of our leaders is a call to be servants and a call to humility rather than power. These people have answered God's call to put, their church, to put his church ahead of themselves. And Paul says, in light of this, love your leaders, respect them, and respect their authority. Paul is simply reminding us here that as God has appointed some to positions of authority and leadership over us, this does not mean that we don't have a responsibility towards them, a shared mutual responsibility as a church towards them. We all as a church body have a responsibility to encourage, support, respect, and as Paul says, love our leaders. Our leaders take on a tremendous duty of care for us and a tremendous responsibility. And James 3 verse 1 tells us that they will be judged according to how they carry out that duty. And so John Calvin asks, what does it say about us as a church if we cannot love those who have committed their lives to sharing the ultimate message of love, the gospel, with us? So what does that look like, okay? What does it look like for us as church to love our leaders? And I hope our own leaders wouldn't disagree, but I think we're on the right path with this stuff here at Village. Um, as part of our core values as a church, we view church as family. We strive for gospel intentionality, and we challenge ourselves to live sacrificially. And in these areas, we can so immediately and effectively encourage our leaders and love and respect them. So challenge yourselves today to be mindful of the work of our elders and those who lead in our church. And be thankful of that. Be intentional with the ways that you can show that thankfulness. Be aware of their needs and do what you can to care for them as they care for us. Be generous with your time and resources in supporting them and their work. And likewise, Paul says that we are to respect their authority when he describes they admonish us. So we should take warning, rebuke, instruction from our leaders as an action born out of love. Just as God has appointed us for salvation, so too has he appointed our leaders to be over us, and we are to love and respect them, acknowledging their purpose in God's plan and God's greater purposes.
it, it's such a strange thing, and I think it's going to stop being a strange thing to be able to say that you've been encouraged by witnessing how your pastor has experienced cancer. Um, the faith and peace demonstrated by Lucas and Sue as they've responded to this challenge and this trial um, has been remarkable, and it hasn't been natural. It's been supernatural. It's been God's spirit at work, and it has been such a witness to the faith that they have. But so too has been the reaction of our church. It isn't normal in this world for people to give up their time, to give up their resources, to give up just their own stuff, to look after people and to put others ahead of themselves. And it's been such an encouragement to witness how you guys have done that. To see how you've not only sought to ease the load on this family, but to minister into their lives as well. And some of the stories that I've heard are just examples of the gospel at work in our hearts. And this is what it looks like to love and respect and care for our leaders. But to this, Paul would say, do this more and more, okay? Do so in the everyday. Do so when people aren't sick. Make this your default. And the last instruction that Paul gives us in relation to our leaders is to be at peace. And while this can be read as a standalone instruction which speaks to not quarreling needlessly or unnecessarily, I think we can infer that being at peace is going to be the inevitable outcome of us loving and respecting our leaders. So, point one, love and respect our leaders. The second part of our communal response to our shared hope is that we are to love one another. Verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The language that Paul uses here, and we won't kind of get into the technicalities of it, but you can take my word for it, that the language that Paul is using here tells us that these instructions are being directed to the same group um, as the previous verses, okay? So um, this is not instructions that Paul's given to church leaders and church elders um, to look after their flock. Um, these are instructions given to the whole church. Paul's reminding us here that in every congregation, the needs are vast. And just as members have a responsibility to their leaders, as we've just looked at, being part of a royal priesthood, we are also responsible for ministering to one another individually. It's not just for our leaders to minister to our needs, and not all needs will be met in the same way. And Paul doesn't offer an exhaustive list of what the needs in the church are going to be, but he singles out three groups, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And he prescribes that the idle be warned, the faint-hearted encouraged, and the weak helped. And these actions and responses are demonstrations of what Paul talks about throughout this letter and others as brotherly love. A few weeks ago, Reuben Hunter reminded us that this brotherly love flows out of two things, unity and humility. Unity in terms of a shared mind, so just as we've been united to Christ, so too are we united to one another. And just as Christ showed us what ultimate humility looks like, so too are we to be humble to one another. So we've got unity and humility hand in hand. And what this looks like is showing compassion to others in a way that reflects the compassion that Christ has shown to us. I wonder, have you ever said the words that, you know what, I would help that person, but they don't do anything to help themselves? Or I'm fed up having to tell such and such the same thing over and over again, or do you know what, that person, I just, I, I don't have time for them. 
Paul tells us that as we are united to Christ, we forfeit the right to have those attitudes, to think those thoughts, or to say those words. John Stott writes that we can't look at these groups, these people who have needs in our church, as problem children who just frustrate us. On one hand, we can't do that because to someone else in our, in our church, we probably fall victim to the same judgment in at least one of these areas. But more importantly, we're not to do this because this is, isn't how Jesus looks at them or how he looks at us. In how we address each other's needs and shortcomings, we're to be patient, bearing in mind the ultimate patience which Christ has shown to us. We have no excuses as children of light um, to become impatient with people on the grounds of their being rude, they're disappointing us, or in other ways, they're not meeting our expectations. And Paul reinforces this in verse 15 um, when he says, see that no one repays evil for evil. And again, Reuben touched on this, um, and it's well worth going back and having a listen if, if you weren't here, but in the Christian life, this tells us that there is no place for retaliation, retribution, or revenge. The only thing that those actions will achieve is drawing us into sin. And Paul says there is no sin committed on us that justifies a sinful response in our heart. So Paul says, rather than repaying evil with evil, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this echoes what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And just a few verses later, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise in the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So we're to bless those who do us wrong and trust God in his perfect judgment, not in our judgment, we're not to trust our own judgment, but trust God in his perfect judgment that he will deal with them. And as Reuben said, either in drawing them to salvation in him or that he will judge them on the day when Christ returns. So consider for a moment what it would look like if we took this seriously in every aspect of our life. Okay, what impact would it have on the world around us if we actively sought to bless those who do us wrong? And within our church, we also need to ask ourselves, are we a church where patience is shown to one another? Is our MC one where weakness and need is something that people are afraid to show for fear of how others would react? Or are we aware of the needs of others around us? And are we stepping in to meet those needs? We're to stand with others in their struggles, provide for them where we can, and relieve their burdens. And as we do this, a church that is marked by this kind of patience and brotherly love will be a healthy community of mutual support and encouragement. And Jesus tells us just how important this is. In John 13, 35, he tells us that it is by this, by how we love each other, that we will be known as his disciples. So, minister to one another's needs and love each other with patience. So, love your leaders, love one another. And the third part of our communal response to our shared hope in Christ is that we are to love God. John Piper has written that the essence of what it means to love God is to be fully satisfied in him as the glorious person that he is, not in the gifts that we receive from him, but in who he is. In verses 16 of this chapter onwards, Paul has given us instruction as to what our corporate worship should look like. So the things that should mark our worship when we gather like we have this morning. And the first chunk of this instruction 
comes in verses 16 to 18, where Paul tells us that we are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. It's been said that these, these three prompt interlinked instructions can almost be viewed as like headings for worship. You know, it should be like an order of service for our worship when we meet. But in these instructions, I believe Paul is showing us, both on an individual and on a corporate level, the right and worshipful response born out of love to what God has revealed to us in his mercy about himself. Okay, so these actions are the right and worshipful response in love to what God has revealed to us in his mercy about himself. Paul says we are to rejoice always because despite any circumstance we find, in, find ourselves in, in him we have a hope and a security that cannot be taken away and in that we should always rejoice. We are to pray without ceasing in so much as our lives should be a continual, constant, ongoing dialogue between us and God as there's no circumstance in life in which turning to our Heavenly Father who listens to and answers our prayers is not the appropriate response. And we are to give thanks in all circumstances, acknowledging that God is sovereign, in control, and working all things for the good of those who love him and keep his commands. Nothing happens outside of his will. And as I said, while these instructions, of course, apply to us personally, here Paul is telling us that this is what we should do when we gather to worship. And goes as far as to say that it is God's will for us to do this. C.H. Spurgeon comment that commented that it's almost as though Paul is writing a formula here in that it's through rejoicing that we inevitably give thanks. And he says that as we marry rejoicing and thanks together, we are naturally driven to pray. And as we do these things in tandem with each other, what is happening is that we're worshiping God according to the fullness of all of his attributes. Each of these responses not only feeds, one, feeds the other, but they stem only from a knowledge of and an understanding of who God is and what he has done and continues to do for us. And ultimately, they stem from our satisfaction in him. And so Paul's final instructions as to how we worship and what that should look like are found in verses 19 to 22. And they can be, they can be grouped together simply as listen to the word and the spirit of God. In these instructions, Paul is acknowledging that the, the right attitude of the heart that will lead to worship comes about only as a result of us having a right grasp of who God is. And Paul is highlighting that the source of that knowledge, the place where we find and we, we're able to grasp who God is, is in his word as revealed to us by his spirit. And so verse 19 says, do not quench that spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. And I wish that we had time to kind of explore this in more depth. But what Paul says here is that whenever God's word is faithfully presented to us, we're to listen to what is being said and expect his spirit to speak to us with a contemporary and relevant voice through these ancient scriptures. And so it's as we do this, as we listen to God's word and God's spirit, that together as a church, when we gather, we will be stirred to worship with the praise, the prayer, and the thanksgiving, which Paul has just spoken about, and which only flows from our satisfaction in and our love for him. So, love your leaders, love one another, and love God for who he is. That's the communal response, okay? That, that should be our, our shared response 
to the hope that we share in Christ. And in verses 23 and 24, Paul tells us why, okay? He shows us the communal result. And once again, he points us back to the gospel and forward to Christ's return. Okay, so we're going back to where we started here. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's through all that Paul has been instructing us to do communally in this chapter that he tells us here the Holy Spirit is already working in the sanctifying process that Christ will complete when he returns. Okay, so the completion of our sanctification and our being made like Christ that will happen when he returns has already started and the Spirit is at work in that through what we do together. We've not only been appointed to salvation so that we'll be justified on the day when Christ returns, but so that we will be sanctified and made like the Jesus who is coming back. And so once again, Paul says, take heart in the sure return of Christ because he's coming back to complete the work that he has begun in you. And verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So take heart, brothers and sisters. The Christ who died for us will return. And this is great news. And as we bear in mind his faithfulness until the end, which Paul talks about here, and the saving work which he will return to complete, we're now going to do what we do every week together in worship, okay? We're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to break bread and share in the wine as we remember the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made for us to make this possible and to accomplish the Father's will, okay? As we've said, we've been appointed unto salvation and Christ died for us to make that happen. Christ died that we might live. I'm just gonna pray words from Hebrews 10, okay? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son and offered him for an all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins and that now he is sitting down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And thank you that by that single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We thank you that he has done that for us. And we praise you and thank you that as you say you will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. And that as a result of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, there is no longer required an offering for sin. Thank you, Father. Church, Christ died that we might live. That, that's, that's the gospel. That's what we've got to share with, with, with people. So share that with one another. And if you know and trust Jesus as your Savior and you're walking in fellowship with his church, then come come together as brothers and sisters and remember and give thanks for what our glorious Savior has done for us. Okay? Share in this together. Okay? We're brothers and sisters. Yeah. Christ died that we might live.